Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to meet together, to read your word and come together as um, members of the Evangelical Union. And I just want to pray that you would be able to um, soften our hearts to your word, that we might be able to um, learn from it and that you would help Rowan speak um, clearly and faithfully um, in sharing the message from Genesis today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you today to start thinking. I'm going to throw, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw up four quotes on four different topics. I'm going to ask you to think about whether or not you agree with the perspective that's being communicated by the person who made the quote. See whether you agree with what they say or not. For the first three, I'm going to ask you to be a little bit bold and I'm going to ask you to vote, when I say so, about whether you think yes, I agree, or no, I don't. I'm going to invite you just to be a bit, bit bold there, put it out there, whether you agree or not. Hopefully, it, you know, you'll feel alright about that. When we get to the fourth issue, I'm not going to ask you to vote because actually it's quite contentious and quite personal and therefore I'm not going to invite you to vote because I want to make sure that the EU public meetings are open to all and that people don't feel uncomfortable about holding particular views as they come because this is a meeting that's open to everyone at the university. You might be a follower of the Lord Jesus, that's great, or maybe you're not, and that's fine. We want to make it open to all. But the first three, I'm going to ask you to be a bit bold and put it out there anyway. Does that make sense? All right, so here we go. First issue I want to raise is the issue of overpopulation. Uh, this guy, Dick Smith, you've heard of Dick Smith Electronics, currently going out of business and selling off all their stuff. Uh, Dick Smith doesn't own Dick Smith Electronics anymore. He established it, made a heck of a lot of money, sold it, and now they've gone bankrupt. But he made a lot of money. But several years ago, he decided to um, start talking about the issue of overpopulation. And this is one of the things he said in a piece. He said, here we are talking about problems which are facing our planet. He was talking about different sort of environmental problems that are facing the planet. But people weren't talking about the most obvious problem. Too many people. He then says, I can't think of any of our present problems in this world which are alleviated by more people. In fact, quite the opposite. I think unrestrained population growth will make virtually every problem more difficult. I think unrestrained population growth will make virtually every problem more difficult. Think about for a moment whether you agree or disagree with Mr Smith. Okay, time to vote. Be bold. Who says, I think Dick is onto something? Yep, I agree. Okay, who says disagree? Interesting. Maybe just a little bit towards the agree rather than disagree, but quite strong showing on both. Okay, that's the first issue, overpopulation. Different issue now, a broader issue, environmentalism. Anyone know who this lady is, Christine Milne? No, not the daughter of A.A. Milne. (laughs) I I don't think so. I don't believe so. Could be. Anyone know? Sorry, thank you. Former, former leader of the Australian Greens up until 2015, uh, so prominent Australian politician. Uh, this is one of the things she said about environmentalism. She said, this, I think this is a very interesting 
philosophical sort of position, there are only two real things, people and nature. You could write your whole philosophy honours project just there, right? You know, just, just, anyway, we'll just say that. There are only two real things, she says, people and nature, and it is the interaction of those two that have to be sustainable. Economic tools have to better guarantee a sustainable relationship between the two. And then she asks, how did we end up with economics suddenly having equivalence with people and nature? Out of the World Bank, it came out as a triangle. That is, the World Bank put out a triangle, a diagram, saying you have people, you have nature, and you have economics. The three key things. She says, out of the World Bank, it came out as a triangle. Then, you always had society and economy trading off against the environment. She says, no, there's only two real things, people and nature. Economics has to serve those two as a priority. Talk to the person next to you whether you think you agree. Okay, let's vote. Who thinks, who thinks Christine Milne is onto something? Put your hand up if you think, yes, Christine Milne, you're onto something there. Something pretty good. Okay. Who says, nah, nah. Wow, so who didn't vote? Okay, right. Uh, very interesting. I wonder if more economics and business students come on Thursdays than other days. Other, other days this week in the EU public meeting that Christine's been voted down pretty strongly. Not entirely because the EMB students always stick up for the economy. Um, but generalisation, I don't mean to offend you. I'm really sorry. Anyway, I'm going to go move on. That's environmental. That's the second issue I want to think about today. Third issue, hard to spell but important topic, speciesism. What is speciesism? Speciesism is the view that all living species should be treated equally. No living species should be given priority over any other. Okay? So, representative of this view, I say Peter Singer, very famous, very famous Australian ethicist, um, arguably the most well-known, actually, Australian ethicist. Uh, He says, you shouldn't say animals to distinguish between humans and non-humans. We are all animals. Or the way Stephen Hawking puts it, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. Do you think humans are... I mean, obviously we're different to other species in some biological sense, but do you think humanity ought to be elevated in some sense over other living species, or should all species be treated the same? Who says all species should be treated the same? Who says humans should be treated differently? Okay. The final issue, I'm not going to ask you to vote on this final one because, as I said, it's contentious and I think deeply personal. 
uh, in terms of how it affects people. And the final, final one is about human life. And by this human life, what I mean is actually I'm talking about the dignity or the value you give to a human life. And this issue comes up in lots of places. It comes up at end-of-life sort of issues, your whole euthanasia debate. It comes up at beginning-of-life issues, your abortion, the status of a, you give a fetus. But it also comes up in terms of when you think about how do you value a human life and how do you choose or should you choose between humans and say some humans are more valuable than others, that affects things like racism, that affects things like how you treat people with disabilities, that affects uh, how you regard people who have incapacities of some sort. So this is a big issue, right? So here's just one example. Mary Ann Warren, who's, uh, uh, she passed away about six years ago, female philosopher, uh, and this is what she wrote in a particular paper, uh, you know, peer-reviewed philosophy paper. Uh, this is her conclusion. Uh, uh, the paper is reflecting on uh, the issue of abortion as a philosopher. This is her conclusion in that paper. She says, Thus, neither a fetus's resemblance to a person nor its potential for becoming a person provides any basis whatsoever for the claim that it has any significant right to life. Consequently, a woman's right to protect her health, happiness, freedom and even her life by terminating an unwanted pregnancy will always override whatever right to life it may be appropriate to even a fully developed one. I'm not going to ask you to vote for whether you agree or disagree with Mary Ann Warren's conclusions there, but hopefully you can understand what she's saying. She's saying that a fetus, even a late pregnancy fetus, should not be given the same right to life as the woman who's carrying that fetus. Interestingly, uh, after she published this piece, the, you know, different people interacted with it, and uh, uh, it was some years later she republished the piece with an addendum, like an extra bit added on to the back, where she responded to different people's critiques of the paper. And one of the things she says in, in the addendum is, People pointed out that the argument I mounted in the paper to reach this conclusion would equally apply to a newborn baby and would say that infanticide, that is, putting to death a newborn baby, would also be legitimate, given my argument that I mounted. And she says, the people who made that conclusion, made that observation, are correct that actually my logic does drive to actually infanticide is okay, given those arguments. But she then puts some other arguments why infanticide might not be okay, based on other ideas, not, not the issues to do with the status of the fetus. So it's a very interesting sort of argument. But I've raised for you four different issues, right? Overpopulation, environmentalism, speciesism, and the value you give to a human life, or what is a human life. Four big issues, right? So we're going to just solve all those today, in the next 40 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes. No, probably not. But what we're going to do is we're going to dig into a particular part in Genesis chapter 1, the very first opening chapter of the Bible, where God, the one true living God, describes for us the creation of 
humankind. Why are we looking at these particular verses? It's because however you want to respond to these issues from a Christian worldview point of view, from a Christian perspective, these particular verses, this description of the creation of humankind in Genesis chapter 1 is foundational. It's not the only thing that should be said to construct a Christian response to some of these issues. But it is a a key part of the foundation for making a Christian response. So we're going to dive into this particular section, see what God's Word has to tell us here, and then have some reflections on how that starts to shape our response to some of these issues. That's where we're going to go. But right now Liz is going to come and read for us this particular passage from Genesis chapter 1. You might like to open it up for us and follow along. So today Bible's, um, today's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 to 31. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Oh, sorry. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, It was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Here ends the reading. So the first question I want us to think about is, well, is humanity just another animal? The view is sort of a species of a type view. I think as a Christian reading Genesis chapter 1, and reading this particular account, the question is, when you read the Genesis 1 account, does the creation of humanity stand out from the creation of all the other creatures? Is it actually marked as different somehow in the actual account? Or is it all pretty flat? Now I want to point out to you that when you read Genesis chapter 1, there's actually, I think, a whole lot of indicators in the text itself that when the one true living God creates humanity, this is something special. This is not just like all the other creatures. So let me run through some of these. One of the first things you notice, if you have to read carefully to notice this, is that in that sixth day, the final day, God speaks not once, but twice. 
Most of the time, reading through the account, on each day of creation, the first six days, it starts with, and God said. And if God speaks something into being. However, on day three and day six, God speaks twice. Now that's interesting because, as I pointed out last week, if you were here, the first three days mirror the days four to six. Days one, two, and three, God forms particular spaces in creation, and days four, five, and six, he fills those corresponding spaces. And in day three and six, which are paired together, God speaks twice, not just once. That in itself really sort of says something is significant is happening on this third slash sixth day. So God speaks, and you know, and God said, is there twice? And twice it's reported for us, and God saw what he had made, and it was reported twice. This is also day six, the, the final day of creation, so you might think that it's heading towards some sort of climax. I guess the fact that it's day six doesn't do that on its own, but paired with the double speaking, maybe it does. What you also notice is the what God says in the creation of humanity is different. All the other times, God says things like, let there be light, and there was light. Or, let the waters be gathered together. Or, let the ground produce, right? When it gets to the creation of humanity, suddenly God says, let us make. Suddenly there's an us there. Not just let there be, let there be, but suddenly let us make in our image. So there's a let us make instead of a let there be, and this is the only time that happens in the account. And there's also this let us make in our image, whereas all the other living creatures are described as God makes them according to their kind. God makes the fish of the sea according to their kind. makes the birds of the air according to their kind. He makes all the, the creeping creatures or the animals according to their kind. And you would expect, just reading through, when he gets the creation of humanity, another living creature, he'll make humanity according to its kind. But that's not what it says. It says, let us make man, meaning humankind, in our image. Everything else is made according to its kind, but humanity alone, in this account, is made with reference to God himself, in our image. That seems to be quite unique here in this account. But there's also a unique relationship and purpose with respect to the rest of creation. You can see it there, if you've got your Bible there. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, humankind, in our image, in our likeness, let them rule, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So here in this very creation of humanity, Humanity is given a particular relationship to God himself, made in God's image alone, and also a unique relationship to all the other creatures. And let humanity rule over all these other creatures that God has created, indeed over the earth itself. So there seems to be, this is something quite special here in the creation of humanity. It's not just another type of animal. There's something special going on. So that's the first thing to know. Let's dig down, though, into what does it mean for humanity to be 
he created in God's image. Now this, this verse, Genesis 1 chapter 26, and this idea that humanity has been created in God's image has been interpreted in many different ways over thousands and thousands of years. So to get you to sort of think about it a bit, I want you to think for a moment, talk to the person next to you, what makes you, if this is true, right, then you have been created in God's image. In what way are you in God's image? Is it your flowing locks? Is it your white gun? What is it that makes you, if this is true, then you are created in God's image. The living God's image. What, what could that be? Talk to the person next to you. Try to work that. Probably talk about yourself rather than talk about them. <laughs> I'm not sure why you're a human guy. But don't talk about yourself. See what you can come up with. Picks up the idea that God says, "Let us make in our image 
Who's the us there? You know, is that is that sort of like God using the royal we? You know, like when the Queen says, "We are not amused." Is that just the sort of the, the royal rule? Like that us? Is that what that is? Or or is it? Well, many Christians reading Genesis one over the centuries have have said, "Surely here, when God says us, surely there's a little." a little shadow of the greater truth that we become aware of only when you get through to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that God in himself is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God, but in eternal relationship of love. That is who we know the one true living God is from Jesus in the New Testament. And surely maybe here where God says, let us, maybe there's just a little shadow of that. You wouldn't get that just from reading Genesis 1, but we know from the later revelation that that's who God is. So maybe, so some people say that, some people say, well, maybe it's just an ancient Near Eastern sort of way, God addressing, you like, the divine court, addressing the angels that he's also created, saying, let us make, like, very hard to pick, actually, I think. Very hard to pick. Um, but the idea, though, is clearly that God is using a plural, let us make, and so maybe that's how humanity is in the image of God by being relational. I want to suggest to you, though, that there's a third option that's a bit more obvious from the text itself. The third option, and I think it's there for the text, is that maybe it's a functional image. Let me show you what I mean. You've got your Bible now, have a look. Genesis chapter 1, verse, as I said, verse 26. God says, let us make man, humankind, in our image, in our likeness, and notice where he goes straight away, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. Who is the one who actually rules over all creation? Well, it's the one true living God who's just spoken it into being and formed and shaped it, right? He's the one who actually rules over all. And then he says, let us make humankind in our image, and let them rule over all the other things I have made. Maybe a much more obvious answer in the text itself is that the image of God here in the text is about our dominion, our rule over the rest of creation. And it's not just mentioned there in verse 26, you can see there, you jump down to verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue the earth, bring it into order. And then he repeats, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. I want to suggest to you that maybe actually what the being made in the image of God is that you have dominion. You've been created by the one true living God in his image to rule over the rest of creation. How are you going with that, by the way? Let's dig down a little bit more into this. Uh, I pointed out where those verses are. You can see there's another point in the Old Testament. I'll take it up in Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, uh, which sort of reflects this account of Genesis and talks about humanity being made to rule over the rest of God's creatures. It's followed there in Psalm 8. What I, and I think when you read on into Genesis chapter 2, you can see there an important qualifier on this dominion and rule. See, because 
If I say to you, ah, see, God has made you to be a ruler of his creation, have dominion over his creation, think, excellent. So now when I go home to that cat that I have to share my house with, that cat who is convinced that she rules, if you have a cat, you understand this, right? Cats are convinced that they are the dominant species on the planet. But no, God has told you that you rule. So you can be as mean as you like to that cat. Or, now you can go and dig out all the oil out of the ground, fill it into your four-wheel drive, and drive up and down the dunes as much as you like, because you rule. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, gives you an important qualifier on that, before you get too excited. Look at 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and take care of it. To work it means to enhance, I think, its fruitfulness. To enhance the fruitfulness of the earth, of all the, of the plants and animals that the Lord has planted there. And to take care of it. So yes, we're given dominion. Yes, we're creating God's image to rule, but also to do it according to His purpose. According to His agenda. Which is to work it and to take care of it. That requires some wisdom on how to live that out, right? But that's our task, if you like, digging down a bit further, part of what this means to be the image of God is to be, if you like, God's presence in the world. What I mean is this, um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when uh, a king set up an image of himself, right, a statue of himself, that statue was to represent his presence, basically to say, I am ruling this area. Or when they set up an idol representing some sort of God, that idol was associated with the presence of the God. Those two things come together and say, in Egypt, where the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, the human king, was considered an image of the God. Indeed, an incarnation of the God. As a represent that God's presence. Well, where can you go to see God at the moment? I can't take you anywhere on this planet to see God himself, but he has made his presence clear by creating humanity in his image. And so each of us are to reflect his presence in the world. We are his image bearers. That doesn't mean you have divine powers, right? Because you're not God, you're not Him, but you're to be His image bearers. And you do that by exercising a God-honouring dominion over the rest of His creation, fulfilling His image. That's not just you individually, it's us corporately. It's about humanity together. Let us make humankind, mankind in our image, and let them rule. It's a corporate image, not just an individual image. So I guess to pull those things together, and this is really the final point I want to make about the image, is that the idea of being made in the image of God, therefore, is a, it's a calling. It's a vocation that God gives to humanity. Be my image bearers. It's not something that's static within you, it's actually a calling to image him in the world. 
to have dominion over the rest of his creation, but do so in a God-honoring way, to work it and take care of it. Now, he gives us all the capacities that enable us to do that. And that's where some of the structural imaging stuff might come in. He gives us the capacity for self-reflection, for thinking, for speaking even. In days one to three in creation, God names things. He calls things day and night. He names things. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, what does Adam do? He names all the animals. God brings the other animals to him and says, I'm not naming them, that's your job. He delegates it to humanity to do what God does. So this is a calling we've received and he's given us the capacity to do it. How do you reckon we go at being God's image bearers in the world? Okay. Thumbs up. Thanks. We're doing an awesome job. Thumbs down. Terrible job. We couldn't do worse. And then you've got the range in the middle. Alright? Ready? One. How do you think we're going at being God's image bearers in the world? Corporately? One, two, three, go. Have a look around. I am... I'm trying to see if anyone, if anyone above halfway. Right? Not me. Right. So let's take the mood of the room is that universally humanity is doing a pretty, and this is now not being recorded, crap job at being God's image bearers. We're not doing a great job of it, it seems, according to you. Hmm. That's a problem, isn't it? Okay, I want to add something to this picture that I'm building here. It's about the Bible. Uh, your Bible is not like this. You've got to bear with me on this one, right? <laughs> your Bible is not like this. Your Bible is never like this. Bible is always like this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, someone needs an explanation. Okay. <laughs> we sometimes come to the Bible and read it in a very flat way. We pick one verse out of this, you know, Leviticus, or we pick a verse out of sort of Zephaniah, and we say, right, he's God's good. Yes, it is God's good for you, that's right. But, the Bible is never like this. The Bible is ever and only like this. There is a story, a, sal a salvation history, that pulls the whole Bible together, and it starts at creation, and it reaches a crescendo, it reaches a culmination, when you get to the person of the Lord Jesus. It is like this. Right? Always. So wherever you're going in the Bible, it's all in brackets, by the way, really, even though it's in this talk, but wherever you're going in the Bible, you must always relate it to where the Bible as a whole of salvation is headed, and that's towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So here we are, we've been digging into the whole concept of the image of God, trying to think, what does this mean? And reading Genesis 1 carefully, that's exactly right. But you should push back to me and say, thank you for all that information on Genesis chapter 1, Rome, very good. But, 
how is it related to Jesus? Because he's the climax of the story. The Bible's like his problem. That's a good question. And when you get to the New Testament, right, given the fact you say, here's all this stuff, we're creating the image of God now, and we've all said we're doing a hopeless job at it. When you get to the New Testament, what do you find? you find that Jesus is described in the Bible, in the New Testament, as the perfect image of God. The one who has not done a hopeless thing. So, I want you to look up either Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, John 14, 8, 9. Look up one of them. I don't care which one. Just look one up. Have a look at it. Okay, look it up. Colossians 1.15. Could someone read that out for us? Just a loud voice read out Colossians 1.15. Listen carefully. Someone? Anyone look up Colossians 1.15? Thank you. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Thank you. The sun, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You just read that. But now you'll read it with all of the Genesis background. You go, ah, who is the image? <coughs> Jesus is the perfect image. Right. Exactly right. Hebrews 1 3. Yeah. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Thank you. Stop there. The exact imprint of his nature or the exact representation of his being. It's not using the word image, but it's the same idea, isn't it? The exact representation of his being. Thank you. Jesus himself said, you want to see the Father? You want to see God the Father? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Does that mean God the Father looks like a Middle Eastern man? Because <laughs> that's who Jesus was, right? No, he's not talking about his looks. What's he talking about? He's talking about his character. See, how does Jesus rule over the rest of creation? Well, one approach, I guess, would be saying, right, well, I guess we've got to find out how does Jesus treat the animals? Oh, is there any place in the New Testament where he treats animals? Well, he eats the fish. <laughs> Where does he treat the trees, the plants? Well, he curses the fig tree. <laughs> and from this, we draw the whole theology of Jesus' attitude. <laughs> How does Jesus rule? Jesus rules with patience, justice, love, mercy. Think about all the interactions the Gospels record Jesus having with people because ruling over creation is not just about freeing the plants and the animals, but it's actually about how we interact with each other as well. And when you see that in the person of Jesus, what you're seeing is God the Father. Because how is the one who God described in the Old Testament? Full of love and compassion and mercy and justice, right? That's what it's like to rule. To have the character of Jesus, who has the character of the Father. Now, we're not doing a great job of that, right? Jesus is the perfect one. But you know what the good news of the Christian message is? 
and acknowledge our failures and put our trust in Him because of what He's done, because of His death and resurrection and pouring out the Spirit, God can remake His image in you. Actually, not can. He does. He remakes His own image in you. That, if you're a Christian person, that is what He's doing. You can see this when you look up some of the New Testament passages, we don't have time to look it up. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22, 24, 2 Corinthians 3, or 1, 12, 3, talks about how the image of God, which is the image of Christ, is being remade in us as we come to Him in faith. That project is not complete. That project is not complete in any of us until we see Jesus face to face when He returns, which is what 1, 12, 3 means. Okay, I'm going to draw all of this together. What does all this mean, pausing to reflect on some of the issues I raised at the start, and I'll finish with this. What does it mean for species, speciesism? Are we just another animal? I think Genesis 1 clearly says, no, from a Christian framework, no, we are not just another animal. We are made in the image of God, uniquely. What about environmentalism? Do we have a responsibility towards the world we live in? I think clearly the answer is yes, we do. We have a significant responsibility. We have to rule, have dominion, yes, but we are not the owners. God is the owner. We are his stewards. We do it for him, on his behalf, with his character. What does it mean about human life, the dignity and sanctity of every single person? Interesting, when you go on into Genesis chapter 9, the Lord God says there, building on the idea that every human is built, is created in his image, the Lord says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. The one true living God who's created every single human person in his image takes that human person's life very seriously. That has radical implications, I would suggest to you, for thinking about issues to do with end of life, issues to do with beginning of life, issues to do with discrimination, issues to do with disability, issues to do with racism, sexism, issues to do with people who are incapacitated, it's a big ticket. Now, we didn't get to the end of the passage. I was going to talk about male and female. He created them. Pretty simple. Radical equality in Genesis chapter 1. Equally alike in the image of God. Equally blessed. Equally addressed. Why does he make male and female? Why are we all just not all one sex? Uh, it seems that in Genesis 1, the picture is because it facilitates God's purposes. How are you going to fill the earth? Adam couldn't just sit there and just keep eating apples until he got fatter and fatter to fill the earth. He needed someone someone to have sex with so that they could have a family so that there could be reproduction, they could fill the earth in order to subdue it. Right? So it seems in Genesis 1, more to say, but that's Genesis 1, that facilitates procreation God's wider purposes. And that is picked up in the New Testament in Christ, where we're told that in Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek. There actually still is Jew and Greek, but in Christ. Those things don't really matter as much because you're in Christ. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, and according to his promise. Next week we're going to dive into Genesis chapter 2 and Adam and Eve, so that should be fun. Uh, before you leave, though, we have one important announcement to make, and then I'd love to get your comment cards on the way out.
There's actually two quick announcements. So, um, obviously, um, you guys are here at PM, but at the EU, we have the big three. So, we have public meetings, which you are all aware about. You're all here. Um, and the second thing that we have is a quip. So, a quip. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your incredible love and that you created the world. We just want to thank you... Um, yeah, that you've created us in your image that we've learned from Genesis today. And we just want to thank you that Christ is the image, um, is your image, that uh, he rules with grace, with justice, with mercy and with love for us. We pray that you would be with each of us this week in um, any of the struggles that we might have, just that you would be with us and that we would learn more and more about you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.